I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And the working and wealthy classes in America are further apart by multiple metrics than they've been in 60 years. Wages, wealth generation, savings, these are the obvious ones, but marriage stability and self-reported rates of well-being are also way, way down for blue-collar Americans. And deaths of despair from suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholism number 150,000 a year, nearly all of them concentrated in poor and working-class communities. And many of these problems begin in childhood and compound into adulthood. So what's causing so many of our children to fall so far behind? And why does today's elite class seem to care so little? Our guest today has experienced living in both worlds and has dedicated much of his writing and research to finding the answers. Rob Henderson is a doctoral candidate at the University of Cambridge. A veteran of the U.S. Air Force, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Quillette, among other outlets. Rob, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to be here. Thank you. Of course. Before we get into the main thrust of our conversation, I'd love for you to share a little of your biography with our audience, as it's both a rather inspiring story and immediately relevant to our topic at hand. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. I'm not sure how, how deep uh, we, we want to get into this um, you know, early on, but just a, a brief overview. You know, Like you said, I'm, I'm going into my third year of the PhD program here at Cambridge, so I'm in England right now. But my uh, path here was uh, very sort of indirect and winding. So to back way up, I was uh, born in L.A. uh, to an immigrant mother. She was from South Korea. My mom was addicted to drugs and just um, generally unable to take care of me. So I spent my early years in foster homes, never found out who my dad was. Uh, Later, I was adopted into uh, the sort of working class family in Northern California uh, in a small town called Red Bluff. And even though it was sort of like rural and, and, and smaller, um, it was still a sort of dangerous uh, and, and very poor town. Recently learned that Red Bluff was something like the, the third or the fourth most dangerous city in California, which I wasn't aware of uh, as a kid. But looking back, it, it really makes sense. There was a lot, of, a lot of drugs, a lot of poverty, a lot of crime in that town. So there was just a lot of drama and chaos in my life as well. My adoptive parents had divorced. My adoptive father subsequently uh, stopped talking to me. And, you know, that was, that was hard for me. It was hard for, for my adoptive mother too, to see, you know, the effect that it had on me. And yeah, my mother fell in love with a woman. Uh, they raised me together. But then uh, my mother's partner, who was sort of a surrogate mother to me, she was shot when I was um, 14 years old, and she survived that event. But it was, you know, just like one more thing that really just um, took an emotional toll on me uh, and changed, you know, sort of the family dynamics. And so, you know, as a consequence of all of this going on around me, um, I wasn't a good student, um, got into a lot of trouble as a kid. Yeah, it just was not really in the mindset was just totally unprepared for school, for college, for any, anything involving like the future, really. My mind was very focused on the present. So, you know, jumping over a lot of things here, but I went into the military right out of high school when I was 17. And then it was there that I sort of started to 
you know, get the structure and the stability and mentorship and all the things that I needed uh, as a young person that I was lacking before. And that sort of allowed me to learn more about myself and what I wanted to do. And subsequently, uh, ended up attending Yale for undergrad. And yeah, just uh, fell in love with with psychology, with uh, with academic research, with writing. So yeah, that's sort of what I've been pursuing the last five years or so um, since I graduated from Yale and and since I've been here uh, at Cambridge. And we can dive into like any of those, you know, any of those you want. Yeah, we will. And I appreciate you kind of condensing what clearly is a very rich and layered background into <laughs> kind of a snippet, which I know is is quite difficult from a biographical standpoint. In your New York Post column, How I Went from Troubled Foster Kid to Scholar at Yale and Cambridge, which you kind of just laid out for us now, you mentioned that 60% of boys who grow up in foster care end up spending some time in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Is this something that you witnessed firsthand when you were a child or something you retroactively learned as a data point when you were studying this kind of research? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't know it was that high, but again, like it's kind of interesting for me to go through these statistics and the research on foster care, on kids who grew up in unstable environments, and then to reflect back on what was going on around me. I mean, it's sort of similar to what I mentioned before about, about the town I grew up in later after uh, LA, I moved to Red Bluff. It felt very sort of unsafe there. And then it wasn't until I, I, I you know, started reading more about that town later, I sort of retroactively understood like, oh, okay, so that made sense. That data point about 60% of foster boys, you know, getting involved in the criminal justice system, that made sense to me too. Um, yeah, multiple of my my foster brothers either went to, you know, what we call juvie or later went on to, to jail or to prison. There was a, I remember I had an older foster brother in one of the homes and he was 12, 12 or 13. And I was, I was much younger than that. I mean, I was probably five or six, but I remember he left and so yeah this this is a very hazy memory but it basically i liked this guy i mean it was kind of fun to be around and he left one day and then he was gone and i asked what happened and it was, one of my foster sisters told me it was something like he uh was at school with a bunch of other boys and they lured this other kid like into this alley or something and then they all stabbed him to death and then basically like this whole group ended up going to to juvie right? Like the you know, detention center for uh, underage boys. And so that was the explanation for why he was gone. But then later, I learned from one of my foster parents that um, while he was in juvie, he hanged himself. Because I think I asked something like, am I ever going to see him again? And they said, like, you're not going to see him again. And then they told me why. And that was like, sort of how I learned what suicide was. And so, you know, that's just sort of like the most stark and vivid memory I have about like, you know, someone I directly knew who had like experience with that system. I, I mean, basically, like all of my friends I grew up with later on in high school after I was adopted. Again, that was a very poor town in Red Bluff. So my friends, my high school friends, yeah, like none of them lived with their parents. It was like sort of very unstable environments for them, too, even though they weren't um, officially in foster care. One of my best friends, I'll just call him Tyler. Tyler was, uh, yeah, he was a really good friend of mine. He, his father was in prison and his mother was addicted to drugs and couldn't take care of him. So he was raised by his grandmother, which I believe was his father's mom. 
And then she died while we were in high school, which just crushed my friend. And then later he ended up getting involved in drugs and, and then like dealing later. And um, yeah, now he's in prison. So, you know, even though he wasn't a foster kid, he was raised in that kind of environment. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's this joke by Chris Rock. I can't remember the, how exactly it goes, but paraphrasing somewhat, he said something like, if a kid calls his grandmother mom and his mama Pam, then he's going to jail. And that was my friend, basically. That was the exact situation with him. So yeah, I mean, a lot of my people that I knew growing up had had sort of yeah, brushed up against, against that system or, or went to jail or juvie and so on. And although you clearly avoided that fate, I think in the same article from the New York Post, you talk about ignoring, I suppose you could say, for lack of a better word, your, your academic studies and, and your duties at school. And you would spend your afternoons, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, basically getting high in fields with your friend Edgar, if I have his name correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, and I, most of this conversation, we're going to be talking about larger macro data sets. But I do think that it's kind of instructive to speak a little bit more about your own biography, because I do feel, I mean, just plainly reading your work, it's clearly influencing the kind of topics you write about and the lens through which you look at these data sets. Looking back now, and I understand that none of us is truly objective when looking at our own lives, was the lack of direction that you had as a young man and as a, as a boy, was it fully a result of being through the foster system or was it something else? Because you do speak about how there was some stability between your, especially when you had your adoptive mom and Shelly who were living together. Obviously, when your original adoptive parents divorced, that was chaotic. But it seems like you did have some level of stability there, at least before Shelly was shot at the gun range, I believe is where it happened. Mm -hmm. Is there a connection between the stability you had or a lack of connection between the stability you had even in that foster setting and the kind of things you were getting up to during and after school? Or looking back, wh what do you think was driving your behavior and was causing you to perhaps not really invest or care about school? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, tr I attribute some of it to the stability. I mean, like, as I look back, the periods where I was a decent student, it, it was when I was in a, in, a, in a safe environment where I felt safe, where I had um, parents, you know, parental figures around me who took an interest in what I was doing. And I, and I don't want to, like, you know, gloss over it or, you know, paint too much of a you know, this sort of uh, rosy picture of, of what was going on. I mean, I was still like having behavioral issues. I was not like a, the perfect student by any means, but I would do my homework. I would focus. I would ask questions in class, those kinds of things. So yeah, I mean, and, and the best period of this was what, between like around nine, 10 years old to 14, um, basically like the middle school years when my mother and Shelly like raised me together during that time. And yeah, I mean, I, I look back on those years pretty fondly because I had that sort of stable home life. It was like, you know, a sort of, quote, traditional family environment. I mean, other than the fact that my mom was gay, but like, you know, that aside, you know, granted, that was, I guess, pretty unusual during that time in that town. You know, this was the early 2000s, that period. But I mean, the family itself was like dinners every night, you know, family dinners, you know, my sister and I, like, you know, we'd take family trips together. We would um, watch movies together. They would ask us questions. They were just like involved in our lives, you know, sort of attentive and engaged parents would be. 
But, you know, once Shelley was shot, that, um, you know, basically like their attention was just completely, um, their attention was on other things. And so that I think that sort of like latent part of me sort of reemerged and yeah. And then get, you know, just sort of spending more time with my friends. I mean, those years are tough enough, like 14, like that adolescent boys are already like barely functioning. <laughs> and so, you know, the hormones and the puberty and everything going on at that age, plus the family chaos and everything else that was going on. Yeah. Spending time with my equally kind of dumb friends, you know, feeding into each other, encouraging each other to do plenty of stupid things. Yeah, I just think that sort of chaos and lack of direction, it was all connected. And it was part of why I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't such a good student. Bridging your personal experience to kind of the stuff that you write about and research now, mm-hmm. you've written across a variety of topics, and most of them seem to carry an almost anthropological framing, whether it's your recent New York Times article, quote, everything I know about elite America, I learned from Fresh Prince and West Wing. Mm which is about growing up watching TV show portrayals of middle and upper class people that shaped your own kind of working class expectations, or how via another uh, New York Post column, you you noticed that, quote, luxury beliefs are the latest status symbols for rich Americans, which was a phenomenon that was being flaunted at your alma mater, Yale. Mm -hmm. But there feels like there's an undercurrent there, a young man grappling with what a stable family or a stable upbringing would look like, how our society talks or doesn't talk about the importance of that stability, and how the wealthiest among us publicly deride traditional family structures while enthusiastically pursuing and replicating them in private. Mm. And there was this excerpt from a 2009 National Affairs article that you posted on Twitter that actually prompted me to reach out to you. And this snippet in particular shocked me. Quote, if the U.S. enjoyed the same level of family stability today as it did in 1960, the nation would have 750,000 fewer children repeating grades, 500,000 fewer acts of teenage delinquency, 600,000 fewer kids receiving therapy, and 70,000 fewer suicide attempts every year, end quote. And so while we'll touch on a few topics today, I'd love for that to sort of be the main thrust of our discussion. And how does family structure, in your view, and stability affect children. That shocked me too, that excerpt written by uh, Brad Wilcox, who's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, who's written a lot about family and marriage, uh, very interesting essays from him. And so, yeah, to your question, I, I think it's huge. And not even necessarily for the reasons that that a lot of educated people focus on. And, and I allude to this in one of those New York Post essays about how you know, there's this focus on education, you know, how, how do we get more foster kids in ed- education? How do we get more poor kids to go to college? How do we get them, you know, so on and so forth, like just sort of using education as the marker or the milestone for what a successful life is, or like, that's the thing that's worth doing. And I mean, it's nice. It's a nice thought. I, you know, I, I've written, it's a laudable goal. I don't see anything wrong with it. But I do think that there's too much attention paid to that goal alone. Okay, so, I mean, let's say that somehow we get every single kid from foster care into college and they all graduate. I mean, right now the statistics are just totally dismal. So so if I recall these stats correctly, it's something like 70 or 80% of foster kids express interest in going to college. But then in actuality, only 10% of them ever enroll in any kind of, you know, institution of higher learning, community college included. And then of those only, oh, and then in total, 
only 3% of foster kids end up graduating. And this is compared to something like 30%, 35% of Americans. So 3% of foster kids graduate from college versus 35% of Americans in general. So, you know, clearly there's something going on there. I think it, it would be great to get more kids to go to college. But again, so backing up, if every single kid like me is raised like me in those kinds of environments and they all get a bachelor's degree, great. But the thing is, like, all of those kids are still going to be carrying the scars of what that background, like, there's no, you're still sort of bearing that burden of what that life is like, and you're carrying it with you. And and so, like, those stats um, that you're talking about, right, like, whatever, drug use and suicide and uh, and therapy and emotional issues, anxiety, disorders, depression, like, yeah, all of those things, like... If you have a bachelor's degree, like that doesn't suddenly heal all of the trauma that a kid goes through, you know, bouncing around different homes and and all the experiences that go along with that. So to me, like, I think the family is a is something that we should focus more on. I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on college and education, but we should put more focus on what's going on in the kid's early life and how do we make that better? So that even if he doesn't go to college, even if he just works a, a decent job or she, you know, whatever they end up doing, even if they don't want to go to college. They're not like completely screwed up from everything that happened to them when they were kids. So yeah, that informs a lot of what. And, and there's another book that I, I've, I've recently I've been excerpting it. I, I read it I think last year, or the year before. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score by Basil Vanderkoek, who's a, a physician who studies trauma, and he's written um, in his book. It was something like the costs of child abuse, just in terms of like you know, taxpayer dollars, exceed. Uh, the cost of cancer and heart disease, addiction, a bunch of other issues, essentially saying that like the current child abuse situation, there is a sort of economic cost to it. And then the Brad Wilcox article that, that I'd excerpted that you had read, you know, that's sort of describing more of what like the emotional or the psychological costs of, you know, living in, in like unstable environments. So I feel like the elephant in the room that is related to these stats that we're talking about. I mean, there's a reason why we're quoting the year 1960. And if I understand the data that, that you've cited, you know, not necessarily directly in this podcast, but other things that I've read, along with other data that I've read in my preparation for this conversation and just in my own free time, it's often framed as there was a lot more stable family life up until about 1960. And then there was the, I think, a campaign that you and I would are both sympathetic to and agree with, which is allowing women to become fully enabled members of society who can work as equals in the workplace, who can pursue their dreams, who aren't tied down to a domestic life, despite what they may want to do with you know the one life they have to live on this earth. So when we're talking about this subject, when I'm hearing you talk about these stats, when we talk about family stability in 1960 specifically, and then we look at the 60 years that have passed since, mm -hmm. I want to make sure, because I think that we're on the same page here, that what, that what you're not advocating for, that what I'm not advocating for is a return to 1960 or 1950s style family life in which, you know, the gender roles for both men and women were much more rigid, that women didn't have as much flexibility in terms of how they wanted to spend their life. I'm 99.9% .9 sure we're on the same page there. So then the question that I would pose to you is, how can we get back to that level of family stability without forcing women, and, and in some ways men, but I, I would say that the burden 
to return to that stability would largely fall on women. How do we create a scenario in which children can grow up in stable family households, how we can encourage that stability without signaling to women that what we want is a return to a regressive social structure? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. I mean, it's like I think that the people who would even be upset or might, you know, take issue with, you know, saying that family life in the 60s was better or something like that. I mean, the thing is, like, family life hasn't changed that much, I suspect, you know, for the kind of people who would who would take issue with it. I'm just going to assume that those people tend to be, you know, college educated, informed, part of sort of the general middle or upper middle class. And what's interesting is that like those kinds of people, like that social class, family life hasn't changed that much for them. If you look at the statistics, you know, sort of the white collar social class and people with bachelor's degrees, essentially, or above, their families look basically the same as what, you know, what families look like in, say, 1960. There's a very interesting graph. I've tweeted it before. You know, different, there's different versions of this from, from the Harvard political scientist, I think it's political scientist, social scientist, Robert Putnam, another one from Charles Murray, but essentially they've documented that, you know, for, you know, white collar sort of college educated families, life hasn't changed since 1960, but for blue collar, you know, high school educated people didn't go to college, those families have just totally decayed. So I think it was something like in 1960, upper, we'll just call them upper and lower class families or white collar and blue collar families, something like 80, 85% of the blue collar families and 95% of the white collar families were intact, kids raised by both of their parents. And then by 2005, the white collar families had dropped from 95% to 85%. So there was a small drop there, but essentially like their lives haven't changed that much. But for the blue collar families, they, they went from 85% in 1960 to 30% in 2005. So there was this massive drop, essentially like that's two different planets. <laughs> if you go into like a more of a blue collar area, most of the kids you see don't have both of their parents. So I find that interesting that just the kinds of people who get upset about this, what you're describing, you know, their lives in all likelihood already resemble the 1960s in terms of having both of your parents, having a stable family life, divorce is relatively uncommon among you and your friends. It's really interesting just to see this. Like I talked to friends of mine from Yale or here at Cambridge and like them and their friends, like nobody knows any parents who've been divorced. Whereas like literally all of my friends growing up in high school, it's, it was either divorce, never married, raised by someone other than your parents and so on. So yeah, so so that's sort of where my luxury beliefs idea came from. It's like, oh, these people get very upset about like advocating family and find a way for kids to be raised in more stable environments. You know, they might get a little upset at that. But then when you look at their own personal lives, there's to me, there's this element of hypocrisy. In that New York Post article, I opened with the story of a friend of mine from Yale. She said, you know, isn't monogamy kind of outdated? Like, you know, it, it, marriage is this really old institution you know, historically associated with, you know, patriarchal impulses or whatever, you know, and so she told me all of this. And then I asked her, well, what do you plan on doing? And she's like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, find a guy, settle down, get married, uh, like basically do what her parents did and her grandparents did. So she's espousing and broadcasting, you know, these sort of avant-garde, you know, trendy views about monogamy and marriage being outdated, but then she herself is going to be doing the same thing, sort of the more traditional family path. And just to quickly leapfrog off of what you were saying, it does seem like the 
wealthy class can pursue the kind of life they're aspiring to, right? And I'm specifically speaking about, I suppose you could say, well, I guess both men and women, but wealthy women can afford to continue to pursue their work because they, it sounds like because they can afford things like nannies and daycare and other things that allow them to kind of split their time Mm -hmm. while poorer families don't have the luxury to do that. And so it creates more tension within the family unit that causes more dysfunction. Am, Am I on the right track there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably an economic component to this, but I, I definitely don't think it's the whole story. Because again, um, in 1960, in blue, blue collar families, 85% of them were intact. Both of the parents, they were married and they raised their kids together. And so I, you know, I don't think that there has been that big of a change in that sort of like social class uh, milieu. I'm also, you know, just generally skeptical of this idea that like, not not that I'm like against economic assistance or anything like that, but you know, if we you know suddenly gave a thousand dollars a month, you know, Andrew Yang's plan or something to um, these these struggling working class and poor people, I I don't know if like I'm I'm just skeptical that's going to make that much of a dent in their family life. Maybe a little bit, but I I just don't see that happening. I, I definitely think there's a there's a very you know, the the elephant in the room that very few people like to talk about is culture. And I do think that among sort of less educated, blue collar kinds of people, I think that just the culture has so radically shifted. It's hard for me to know, like, in terms of specific policies. I mean, one thing I was thinking about, you know, I've, I've talked about this with people before is like, have there been cases where, you know, for example, we've had like public awareness campaigns or something that have actually noticeably changed behavior. And you know, one example that, that comes to mind is uh, is smoking, right? So I think in 19, yeah, again, so back to 1960, when this is actually worse back then, like something like a third of Americans smoked cigarettes in the 1960s. And then today it's like 10% or something like that. So it's, you know, huge drop off in terms of number of Americans who smoke. And I think a big part of that was like broadcasting, you know, I remember growing up as a kid, like all the time, I mean, I still smoked anyway, but like, I still remember these ads, which I guess had some effect, you know, saying like smoking kills 50,000 Americans a year and all this kind of stuff. So I was thinking like, I, I don't know if or, or how this would work exactly, but, you know, this wouldn't even be a policy change, but this would just be like, you know, a public awareness of children raised by two parents earn X number of dollars more over their careers relative to children raised by single parents. Or, you know, something like, you know, this would be more controversial, I'm sure, but something like, you know, children raised by two parents are eight times less likely to be abused than children raised in single parent homes. You know, and that's actually a real or a real figure. So this would be a way where you wouldn't even necessarily have to change any policies, change any laws, but just sort of bring more attention to outcomes based on family structure. And maybe this would this would change people's minds. You know, this is a personal story. I have no idea if this affected anyone else in the same way. But I remember in my high school biology class, I think I was a freshman. Yeah, first year, there was this um, poster uh, in the in the classroom. And it stood out to me because it was kind of different than the other posters, you know, the other sort of school academic motivational posters, you can do this or keep your eyes on the goal, whatever. But this one was like, if you do, if you do these three things or take these three steps, then you will likely like not go to jail or not be in poverty. Basically, like do these three things and and your life will be okay. And it was something like, wait until you're at least 20 to have a kid. 
graduate from high school and get a job or something like that or seek employment. It might have been like you know, more formal professional writing. But I remember that stayed with me. Like, like I remember thinking like, OK, that's not too hard. Like I could do I could probably do those three things. Like I don't know how many other kids were thinking that way, but that was like an example of something that affected like the 14 year old me, something that stayed in my mind all these years later. I don't even know if it changed my behavior, but it was something that stayed with me. So I think something like that might have some effect um, in the aggregate if we sort of broadcast these messages on a, on a bigger scale. I think that something like along the same lines, politicians and prominent public figures could talk more about the importance of family. Uh, this was something that President Obama during his, uh, you know, during his tenure, he would, you know, give these very moving speeches about fatherhood on Father's Day. And, and it meant a lot coming from him because, you know, he himself was raised without a father. He sort of had that connection to the African-American community. You know, it, it, uh, it was something that I think people paid attention to. And he spoke about this issue with, with a credibility that other people couldn't. Uh, I, I think something like media portrayals of good parenting. So I've done um, Dr. Drew, uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky. I've been on his YouTube channel a couple of times talking about some of these same things. But I remember one time he said something like uh, almost every single character in a television drama would qualify for a personality disorder <laughs> in terms of like dark triad traits or narcissism or psychopathy, like all of our favorite characters, maybe not the characters I wrote about in that New York Times article. I don't think Will Smith and Fresh Prince was like, I don't think he had a disorder, but like, I think a lot of our favorite shows like Breaking Bad or Game of Thrones or something like that. Yeah, these people are kind of like twisted, right? And so I've never seen this quantified, but I, I would bet there's a lot more sort of bad behavior and infidelity and betrayal on TV than in real life. And part of that is just because it's more entertaining, right? Like who wants to watch a normal person sort of do the right thing and do normal things on TV? Fine. But like... I think there are some Americans, some people who would like to watch uh, just a happy, like blue collar, working class family. You know, like, I, I know like Roseanne or whatever got got in trouble recently, but like something along like Roseanne of the 90s, like that kind of sitcom that could be sort of a version of that could be done today of like a struggling family trying to keep it together and, and they love each other and, you know, just sort of positive messaging. I think a lot of people would enjoy something like that. I think these are phenomenal ideas, but why I am cynical about them is because I read your work. <laughs> and, why, why, okay. and, and what I mean by that is, based on a lot of the writing that you've done, it seems clear to me that for a kind of a functioning society, or, and it seems like this happens across all societies, is that whoever the elite class is sends out signals to the rest mm -hmm. of society. And then those signals are oftentimes absorbed and replicated by the working class, right? You touch a bit on this in your article about Fresh Prince and West Wing and how that kind of influenced what you strived for as a kid. And you can see this replicate even in terms of naming children, right? And it's it's almost like a whack-a-mole game where wealthy parents will name their children, you know, I don't know, like Kayla, right? For like a few years. Hmm. Then that'll start trickling down. Working class families will begin to name their children Kayla. And then wealthy families, seeing that now poor kids are being named the same name as their rich kids, will change the name. And so you see this lag where wealthy parents will name their kid a thing. And then working class families will name their kid that same thing aspirationally. And then the names will change again. And it seems like the era where the wealthy or elite class, however we want to name them, were interested in broadcasting what a healthier or right or more successful way to live was to the working class, it seems like that's been 
kind of dead for a few decades. And that while the wealthy class is still practicing those same techniques, those same traditions, you spoke about this uh, in terms of marriage rates, that they're broadcasting something entirely different and counterproductive to the working class, even though that's not what the wealthy class is doing. To go to the Dr. Drew podcast that you mentioned, which you've been on a few times, in a discussion that you had with Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla, you touched on another stance that the elite class espouses in public but shuns privately, which is fat acceptance. While declaring that one can be healthy at any size, you commented that privately, wealthy and well-educated people harshly judge those who are overweight and obese and go out of their way to personally live a healthy lifestyle themselves. So in the past, the do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do hypocrite was often a moral figure, right? Perhaps a religious leader railing against extramarital affairs or homosexuality, only to be caught later cheating on his wife with another man. Mm. But now... This sort of talk is trafficked through a lens of acceptance, diversity, openness, inclusion, but the people advocating for these practices rarely actually practice them themselves. So if the elite know that eating right and getting married leads to better life outcomes, what is motivating their counterproductive messaging? Who are they attempting to impress? Because everyone in their social circle is doing the quote unquote right things. So the hypocritical pastor was putting on a veneer of morality because his congregation expected it from him. Mm -hmm. But who are elites preaching to and for what purpose? Yeah, I think they're mostly preaching to each other. I, I, yeah, I don't know exactly how, you know, how it became fashionable or trendy to, you know, for example, the fat acceptance movement. You know, I know multiple, multiple people, students or graduates of elite universities who publicly like they've they've sort of made these comments about fat shaming is wrong and all this stuff. But I know in their private lives or in their just their personal lives, not even as private, but like, you know, they're they're gym fanatics or they're avid runners. They very they're, they're on some kind of weird, you know, they're on the keto diet or something like they're very careful about their image and their appearance and their diet. But like how this came to be, where like on the one hand, you're you know, sort of um, uh, espousing these views that are sort of like not really what you personally practice or the people around you, you know, like very few, like, I mean, if you just look at obesity rates, right, like, you know, at least in the US, um, things have kind of changed in the last, I don't know, 50 or 100 years, where now it's income is sort of negatively correlated with obesity. So the less money you have, the more overweight you tend to be. But if you like, you know, I, I would bet like, I, I've never asked, actually, I should ask this, but like the guys I went to high school with, I would be curious if they've even heard of the fat acceptance movement or, you know, fat shaming or these kinds of things. And like in, in that community, there are more overweight people, whereas places like Yale and Cambridge, for example, like there are very few overweight people. But these are the kinds of places where you are most likely to meet people who are very, very against fat shaming and commenting on people's weights. So how this came to be, though, is is interesting. I mean, I think what you said before about, you know, there's this sort of whack-a-mole or this sort of like red queen thing where you're just running as fast as you can to stay in place to make sure that you are are continually above everyone else. If the people below you adopt a belief, you have to change it and update it somehow. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Like we will see, for example, fat shaming trickle down that belief. And then once it becomes accepted in society that you're not supposed to do this, the elites will sort of update and change. And yeah, it would be really interesting and say like the next five to 10 years, if suddenly the elite started caring about obesity as a health issue again, once like blue collar people, lower income people, you know, continue to, to become more overweight 
and start espousing these views. And then the elite will say, oh, actually, you know, maybe we should bring back some kind of you know, social judgment to help people. That would not surprise me at all if that came back. So, yeah, I mean, this is all, this is all very interesting stuff. Yeah, if your skepticism, I, I think, yeah, it might be warranted to some degree. But I, I, I mean, I guess like one thing that I'm trying to do with this writing is to shine a light on it. A lot of people, I think, don't think that deeply about their own beliefs and the things that they say in a spouse and why they come to believe it. Myself included. I'm not, you know, setting myself apart somehow. I'm sure I have tons of sort of unexamined assumptions that I'm not even aware that I'm, you know, just sort of living by or thinking. But you know, me as a sort of, you know, outsider to the world of highly educated people and the ways that they think and, and the things that they say, these are just some things that have jumped out to me um, that I've decided to draw some attention to. And maybe, I don't know, maybe if uh, if people become aware of this and, and the outsized effect that they have, I think a lot of the elites like to downplay their own influence or sort of like a common sort of fallback among, and this is interesting because it's sort of on the left and the right, this sort of common fallback is like, well, even if there is some kind of accept, like people still have to take some responsibility for their lives or people still en- at the end of the day are making their own choices. So even if you broadcast certain values on television or in video games or in the media or in podcasts, you know, people can listen and think what they want or whatever, but like, you know, people are going to do what they want. They make their own choices. And and that's true. And I agree with that. People should make their own choices. But, you know, if you are, well, I don't know which word to use here, if you're blessed enough or privileged enough to be a member of the, you know, highly educated class, maybe, yeah, maybe people could think more about broadcasting uh, messages that would help people and and to make better choices. Yeah. And why this has become such a important issue for me is, you know, I'm not some kind of (laughs) Ben Shapiro stan here, you know, but the kind of things that he advocates in terms of family structure, I mean, the the bullet points you listed from that poster, I mean, you could rip those right from a Ben Shapiro podcast. (laughs) And I don't think that's a bad thing. What is shocking to me is why isn't that information being replicated on the left as well as the right? Why has it become a partisan issue when it should be nonpartisan. We don't have to shame single mothers. We don't have to shame foster parents. We don't have to shame households that aren't blessed or privileged enough to have two families in them to also advocate the fact that having a stable family, having two parents in the household, creating a safe space for children to grow up and be loved should not be just a conservative talking point. Why it's infuriating to me is because I consider myself you know, I mean, I feel less and less like this every day because I talk to my friends and some of the stuff that I'm saying right now, they would consider abhorrent. Like, how dare you advocate? <laughs> it's, it's, it's absurd. How, how dare I advocate for, you know, a more traditional family structure to provide a safe place for children? I don't know if there is the kind of buy-in from the people who create media in 2020 because they would fear that they would be judged by their peers, the other people in the writing room, right? I come from the entertainment industry. I cannot see a television show dedicated to a stable family life that is not on a network like CBS that is specifically geared towards a more conservative audience. Hmm. And I wouldn't have a problem with that necessarily if I didn't know that all of the writers and all of the people in the entertainment industry, while they poo-poo it publicly, do it themselves. It's the hypocrisy that upsets me. And that's what I'm trying to figure out and why your writing, I think, has been so instructive. And I'm just trying to figure out how we get back to a place where 
people who are in positions of influence feel comfortable telling other people to live how they themselves are living. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And and you're bringing up an interesting point here. And so this is sort of the more, I don't know, the academic side of me coming out here based on all kinds of interesting research in psychology. You know, people don't like to adopt and espouse the beliefs of people they perceive as their adversaries, their enemies. And I think there could be something going on here. We're like, okay, so the people, you know, probably on average, I don't think this is, um, controversial to say, like people who work in the media and entertainment industry on average are probably more left than the median American. And so perhaps for them, because somehow, you know, family and espousing these sort of family values, say, um, has become associated with the right, you know, you don't want to be, quote, tainted by, you know, expressing those views yourself. And so one way to sort of signal to other people that you are not a conservative I mean, a very simple way is to say something like, you know, isn't monogamy outdated? Suddenly you can, you can tell a lot more about a person just by saying that, you know, you can probably predict their views on all kinds of other social issues just by those words alone, right? And one thing you'll know for sure is that they're definitely not uh, on the right or a conservative. They don't listen to Ben Shapiro unless they listen to him to hate him. Um, And so... I think that it should be more of a a bipartisan issue. I mean, there are certain things that are bipartisan, and I don't know why this can't be one of them, where people can come together and agree that, like, we should start thinking more about how kids, you know, kids in this country are raised and and what their experiences are like. And I think a big problem with it, I don't know if this is a problem, but like one, you know, one reason for it anyway is, uh, you know, kids can't advocate for their own interests. Um, they can't vote. They can't politic and come together and draw attention to the plights that they experience. And I'm not even saying that they should, like, I'm not like advocating for lowering the voting age or something like that. But I'm just saying like, this is one reason perhaps why children's issues are so often overlooked. In one of the New York Post essays, I quote from, uh, from Nicholas Christakis, who's a sociologist and physician from Yale. You know, he said something like, uh, if you look at policy, like child policy in the US, almost none of it has been formulated with the children's best interests in mind. It's been primarily driven by adult concerns. Adults think, well, what do I want? What's best for me? What's going to make me happy? And there's not much thought given to, you know, well, what's best for kids and you know what should be done to make sure that they live a, a decent life. And then and anytime kids are brought up again, it's sort of like, how do we get them to go to college? How do we, you know, get them to make more money as though like education and money are the 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 most important key variables that you know determine a person whether a person can be happy or, or to live a fulfilled life. There's this guy, Chris Arnade, who's wrote an interesting book called Dignity. Mm-hmm. The subtitles Seeking Seeking Respect in Backrow America. And essentially, like the book is um, sort of uh, photographs and exposition on you know what life is like in among poor communities in the US. And he traveled all over to, you know, sort of working class, white communities, black communities, poor people everywhere. And one of the things he sort of stresses repeatedly in this book is that like, you know, these people don't value the same things, not all of them anyway, value the same things as people who live in, you know, in middle or upper middle class coastal cities, not all of them want to leave their town and go off to college and settle in uh, LA or New York or something like that. Like a lot of them just want to work a decent blue collar job, make a living wage and stay home with their, you know, find it, raise a family there. I don't think there should be anything wrong with that to think more about how can people live a good life without 
necessarily having to go to college. And yeah, this is an interesting debate that I keep seeing um, sort of danced around is why should you have to go to college to, to live a decent life? But yeah, I think the, the partisan issue, that to me is, is, a, is perhaps a key reason why you know, the elites or the, the well-to-do who tend to be more on the left, why they might be skeptical advocating family values. You know, you, you just don't want that contamination, which is, I think, like sort of short-sighted and petty and tribal. And, but all those things are part of being human. I think we can overcome them. But, you know, first we have to think about it and, and reflect and, and, and then try to do that. Yeah. I wonder if some of the left's reticence to talk about all the stuff that precedes a college education is an allergy to talking about individual actions versus structural results. You know, like if talking about college or talking about an educational system is more about something at the societal or structural level rather than having to dig down into, okay, who are the individual people who are most deeply affecting this child's life when they're four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve? And I wonder if that's part of it. But I do, I mean, if, if you took this exact thing and just tweaked it so it's something else, it's not traditional family structures, it's vaccines. And if, you know, the left and right were <laughs> aligned, and I think this is probably rather topical right now, the left and right were aligned on the importance of vaccines, but then for some reason, the right got especially vocal about how amazing vaccines were and how if you took vaccines, you know, your child's going to be so much better. And then the left out of a desire to disassociate itself from the right started poo-pooing vaccines while behind the scenes continuing to take them. Mm. I mean, if if that were the case, right? And and I don't think this is an absurd comparison because the the life effects, you detail this in your work and it's actually part of my next question. The life effects of growing up in an unstable household are so detrimental, I would say almost to a greater effect than not taking certain vaccines. And yet, if it came down to, if we found out that there was a giant public campaign from wealthy elites that was anti-vaccine, and then we found out that secretly they were all taking them, there would be understandable and enormous pushback. And yet, we can see this happening right now. We can see how to socially vaccinate your children to some extent to a life of crime, to a life of bad educational outcomes, to a life of lower income levels. And yet that vaccine is not being promoted. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, analogy. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense that, yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if they're saying, you know, <laughs> aren't vaccines kind of outdated and then behind right, the scenes right. they're still taking it and you know, sort of adhering to these, you know, the old ways of, of vaccinating your kids, but, but uh, you know, sort of creating content and, and espousing publicly. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, that, that vaccines actually don't work or that they, they're not important. Or, you know, taking a vaccine is just as good as not taking a vaccine. Meanwhile, they're all taking vaccines. Right. There's no, there's no one right way to live your life. Take a vaccine. Don't take a vaccine. It's totally fine. Meanwhile, all the kids in the Upper West Side are completely vaccinated against polio and kids in the Midwest and in Watts are getting crippled. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's almost the same thing. If you really mm -hmm. think if you think about the life outcomes that happen from living certain ways. And again, I have to explicitly say that this is not a judgment on anyone who comes from that kind of background. I'm speaking with you. You've done quite well. I have friends who come from working class backgrounds and they come from areas in which their mothers and fathers are really trying, mm -hmm. but they've been misled. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. 
I want to go back to that rather stunning stat from your New York Post column from earlier. The 60% of boys who grow up in foster care end up spending time in the criminal justice system. In that same column, you wrote, quote, another study led by Amy Dworsky at Chapman Hall, a policy research center at the University of Chicago, found that by the age of 17, more than half are arrested. And in that same column, you cite a National Foster Youth Institute study, and I I think you referenced this earlier, that found that less than 3% of former foster kids graduated from college. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, in an excerpt from the book that you also referenced, The Body Keeps the Score, you quoted a passage that said, quote, children who lived in London during the Blitz and were sent away to the countryside for protection against German bombing fared worse than children who remained with their parents and endured nights in bomb shelters and frightening images of dead people, end quote. So (laughs) I'm going to get a bit over my skis with this question. (laughs) So I'm looking for you to Rain me in with your knowledge on the subject and your own personal experience. And I say this sensitively as someone who has dear friends who just completed their certification for fostering. Mm-hmm. Are the disparate stats that I just cited, right? The seeming unconnected stats of the London bombings and the poor outcomes for children, for the majority of children raised in foster homes, are they connected in some way? As in, If a child is away from his or her parents, either whisked away to the English countryside or entered into the foster system, is there some kind of automatic cause and effect which results in worse outcomes by dint of being away from one's own parents? Because that London bombing stat was honestly shocking. I shared it with some of my friends and they couldn't believe it either because the mind kind of instinctively thinks that a child in the British countryside living a a much more peaceful life miles away from German bombers would have a better time of it than a child in a bomb shelter and seeing dead bodies. So this seems to say, and <laughs> I defer to you, that it is better for a child to live through a traumatic, chaotic experience with their parents than a stable, peaceful existence without them. And does this mean that the fates of many foster kids are sealed literally the moment they've entered into the system, regardless of the quality of their care? Or am I missing something here? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so later on in in, uh, in Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, in which he cites that study about kids in London versus kids in the countryside. And, and yeah, I mean, these are these are really interesting questions, you know, contentious. But one of the things he discusses is, you know, if the source of the trauma is the caretaker, then that's a different story. And so it's one thing if like, you know, a kid is living with his parents and they're really poor and things are a little hectic and uncertain and so on. And like, that's one thing. But the other, you know, the, the, the situation in which like the caretakers themselves, the parents themselves are the source of, you know, abuse or neglect or harm and so on that will negatively affect the kid um, in in very deep ways. So there's a difference, I guess, between like sending a kid away versus keeping them with the family during like the the German blitz in London versus like what to do with a kid if, you know, he's being physically abused by his parents, whether or not the kid should be taken and, and placed into foster care. So this is like, I mean, and it's a question. I mean, I've talked to some people who work like in policy you know, with foster care about like, what is the threshold by which caseworkers, social workers, you know, how how they determine whether or not a kid should be removed from their parents, 
I think generally the the line of thought is like the kid should be with the parents unless there's some extraordinary reason. So the sort of the the default, the null hypothesis or whatever is keep the kid with the parents unless there's some extraordinary reason why not. But that gets vexing too because like I remember and I've and I've heard this from other people too, but like I remember I had like foster siblings whose kind of like messed up parents, you know, parents who were, you know, addicts or, you know, had had some personality disorders or some kind of issues. They were always sort of like on the periphery. The kid would come to live in a foster home. Uh, they'd be taken from the parent, live in the foster home. And then like the parent would kind of like shape up, like string together a few weeks of sobriety and say that they were okay again. And then the kid would go back to live with them. And then the parent would fall apart and do something. And then the kid would go back into foster care. And so they'd have these, you know, these parents who were sort of like, right. And, and this gives the kid a lot of like, you know, I think this is, this is a problem for kids because they don't know like, well, maybe this time, you know, mom will be okay and I'll be able to live with her forever or maybe not. Or am I going to stay in this home or where am I going to be next week? Um, and this is actually one of the reasons why. So I lived in, so for a long time, I thought I had only lived in five different foster homes as a kid, but I'd actually lived in seven I lost track, you know, part of it was probably just like the trauma of moving around every few months and not being able to just like know like where I was going and, and just like total instability about like not just what house I would be in, but like who was in the house, right? Like different kids were always moving in and out of the houses that I was in. And so one of the reasons why they move kids so frequently like that is so that the kids do not get attached to those foster parents because sometimes what can happen is a kid will move in with a foster family you know, they'll stay with them for a few months and then the parent comes back on the scene. But now the kid has developed this loyalty to these foster parents. And then this can create some problems about like custody and the kid and so on. And so the idea is, well, let's just move the kid around a lot so that they never get attached to any of these people just in case the parent comes back. But in my case, there was no chance of my mother ever coming back. So I was moving all the time without that. But I mean, when should kids be removed? Are they better off in foster care versus not? I mean, I think that the system, I mean, the system is messed up in a lot of ways, but such as it is, like, probably for most of the kids, I think that, you know, being with a foster parent is better than living with a very sort of, you know, just a, a caretaker who is also creating trauma for, for the kid. So if I understand you correctly, living with your biological parent, let's say, mm -hmm. in a environment that is externally chaotic, a dangerous neighborhood, mm -hmm. but the family unit itself, either the mother and father, the mother alone, the father alone, et cetera, whatever combination um, we're talking about, if that is stable, the external chaos doesn't seem to have a huge effect on the child themselves. It's when internal chaos or internal mm -hmm. disorder that happens at the hands sometimes literal or figurative hands of the parent, that's what's most detrimental for a kid. So basically, if the kid in the bomb shelter was also being emotionally or physically abused by their parent, then the countryside would be better. Right. But if it comes, if it, if it comes simply down to being with your parent in an externally chaotic environment like a bombing versus being away from your parent in a stable setting, it's always better to be with the parent. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say always, I mean, not always right, right, but like right. on average, on average, yeah. I would say that's the case more often than not. Yeah, more often than not, it's better for kids to be with their parents and, and ideally with with two parents, with both of their parents, um, because that's, you know, that's just sort of like the, the data on that. I mean, that's just clear that kids in two parent families, 
tend to fare better on on all kinds of of different measures, you know, and not just in terms of educational or economic measures, but also in terms of just like rates of depression, suicide attempts, um, all these other kinds of things, uh, anxiety disorders. Yeah, they're just uh, they're just better off. You know, teen pregnancy as well. I just read this really interesting study. I mean, I read it a while ago, but I just sort of re-examined it. But the study was basically like they they looked at a bunch of you know a huge data set, but essentially just to simplify somewhat, the researchers looked at pairs of sisters. Uh, there was an older sister and a younger sister, and the elder sister lived with her parents, you know, basically throughout her childhood until she left the home. And then the researchers looked at the younger sister who at some point during the parents' marriage, they divorced. So the younger sibling witnessed the parents' divorce while the older sibling was already out of the house. And then they measured, um, I mean, one, one of the things that stood out, but I think they measured a few different variables, but one was teen pregnancy rates. The younger siblings were significantly more likely to experience a teen pregnancy relative to the to the older sister. So in this case, it was interesting because they sort of like, to an extent, controlled for economic, family environment, social class, uh, to, to some degree genetics as well. And so the, the key variable was, you know, the, the causal variable was whether or not they could experience a divorce. So even in those kinds of situations, right, there does seem to be an effect of an unstable family environment on, on kids. We've talked about luxury beliefs to some extent throughout the course of this conversation. You've referenced it a few times. But for our audience who may not understand what you're referencing, you're speaking on a, a couple of essays that you wrote about the belief systems that you were first introduced to when you went to Yale that seemed to be explicitly part of a certain kind of class structure. Can you talk a little bit about what luxury beliefs are and how they play out in the class divide between the wealthy and the working class? Luxury beliefs, uh, this is a term that I, that I had come up with after witnessing sort of some of the thoughts and customs and habits and, and beliefs of, of highly educated people at places like Yale. And so I define them as ideas or opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower class. A, a simple example uh, of this was, was the aforementioned idea of, of, of fat acceptance, right? So the upper class, they espouse these beliefs that are status conferring about, you know, beautiful at every size and so on. But that message holds disproportionate power and influence, and it does trickle throughout the rest of society. And it's not going to be, you know, their fellow highly educated peers who, you know, take that message and, and integrate it into their lives. It'll be more likely people who are less well off, less well to do. I mean, there are a couple of components to the luxury beliefs idea that really sort of, I mean, these were like scattered thoughts in my mind as I was sort of going through undergrad, just seeing all these interesting things going on. But um, there were like just a couple of components to this that sort of snapped it into place for me. I, I guess like th there was this assumption that I had, and maybe other people have, is that if you are at a place like Yale or, or one of these fancy colleges, that you, you're probably set, right? Like you probably don't think that much about making, like you've already made it, you're okay now. And what I found interesting is that like there's actually, there's been a couple of recent studies on this about who cares the most about social status. So this is something that I'm interested in in my own, you know, my own research as a grad student here at Cambridge. But this idea of social status, right? Who cares about status? And what researchers have found is that even if you might, you might think like, oh, it's the downtrodden, the people who don't have much, those are the people who want to grab status and, and sort of elevate and lift themselves upward because they don't have much. But that's not the case. It's actually desire for status is positively correlated 
with social class. In other words, the higher up you are on the social ladder, the more you strive to protect the status you have and the more you try to obtain more status. And this actually, even if intuitively, that sort of maybe doesn't make sense, in terms of my observations, it totally made sense. The kinds of kids at Yale and grad students, you know, just the social milieu, I mean, these people are very often, not all of them, but very often, more than I've seen anywhere else, obsessed with getting the right internships, getting the right jobs, wearing the right brands. You know, so I'm sort of st sticking to like this sort of professional economic realm here, getting into the right, you know, of course, the right university, but then also the right grad school, the right med school, the right law school, being seen with the right people, taking the right Instagram. I mean, like I've seen people take an Instagram photo, do a bunch of different filters on it, and then spend unnecessary amounts of time trying to find the perfect quote from, you know, some writer from the silent generation, you know, something like a Faulkner quote to, to put alongside the, the caption for the Instagram picture. And no one else I know, like, you know, no one back home that I know that guys I grew up with, they don't do that. So there's this obsession with status. So that's, you know, that's sort of the first part of it is like, okay, they care a lot about status. The other part of it is that I sort of hypothesize, I speculate that I think it's not as cool as it used to be to broadcast status with material goods. I think there's there's something a little tacky about it. I think some like within some niches, some celebrity, whatever, like you can sort of get away with it. But by and large, I think today it's less cool than it was a hundred years ago to demonstrate and display status with material goods. Back in the day, if you read um, you know, Thorsten Veblen, who I, I draw a lot of inspiration from, he was a, a sociologist from the late 19th century, or Pierre Bordeaux, who was a French sociologist, you know, they they documented how, you know, these rich guys in the early 20th century or whatever, late 19th century would wear tuxedos and they'd wear a pocket watch and a monocle and ensure that, you know, they had a butler and all these servants. And so they were sort of seen as having status, uh, being being seen driven, like having a driver was a, a an indicator of social status. I think today there's this sort of anxiety and the discomfort with showing off in that way. But of course, you know, the upper class is always going to want to distinguish themselves. And one way to do this is with beliefs. So to me, I think beliefs, uh, a quote that I used, I think this is in a Wall Street Journal op-ed I wrote, was that beliefs are the new powdered wig, or maybe luxury beliefs are the new powdered wig. So now it is an indicator of your status, the kinds of beliefs you hold, the ideas you espouse. You know, some people say like, well, aren't beliefs cheaper, right? Like tuxedos are expensive at least. So if, you, if you're wearing a tuxedo, people know, okay, you have money. Beliefs, well, can't anyone copy a belief? I hear a luxury belief. Can't you just copy it? Like, does it really have value? Is it a costly enough signal to indicate that you are a member of the upper class? And I say that it is because, you know, you have to like spend a little bit of time, more than a little bit of time absorbing these messages to convey them in the right way. You have to sort of read the right books and listen to the right podcasts, follow the right Twitter accounts, marinate yourself in the educated class before you can express your beliefs about, you know, contentious social issues, or even not so contentious social issues, in a way that's that codes to fellow elites that like, oh, you're one of me, you know, I know that you, you know, you went to an expensive college too, or, you know, you also listen to NPR or whatever it is, you know, or, you know, you read the Wall Street Journal, you, so you know, like, so those two things together, beliefs have sort of, to some degree, replaced material goods as indicators of status. And then the upper class cares more about anyone else about that. To me, it's sort of click like, oh, this is what's going on here. This is why, you know, like you'll hear very outlandish opinions that you won't hear anywhere else 
in you know highly educated um, social circles. Yeah, two observations in regards to what you just said before we get to our final question. From about 2013 to 2018, I dated a woman of color from a rather elite background who studied critical race theory. She was a lawyer, et cetera. And so I'm from a kind of a middle class background. So I was exposed to a lot of environments and a lot of people who were much wealthier than me. And, you know, oftentimes I would, I would be one of, if not the only white person in the room, which wasn't a big deal to me. But what I did notice as someone who on a day-to-day basis would mostly work with blue collar, black and Hispanic, and some Asian guys who had high school only education were largely from Long Beach, Compton and Watts. When I would be in the elite circles, right, of again, mostly POC, they would talk a lot about their oppression. And then when I would be, you know, shooting the crap with (laughs) my colleagues at work, they mostly talked about video games and anime. (laughs) But they were from the actual classes and environments and neighborhoods. I mean, it was not uncommon for me to hear just like casually one of them throw off that like, they had been shot when they were 12 and then like show me the bullet wound Mm. or that one of their friends had died in a drive-by and just say it so matter-of-factly and then go back to talking about like Yu-Gi-Oh or (laughs) I I don't know anime that well, but, um, or Dragon Ball. And then to go to, you know, some cocktail party where I feel a little bit like an imposter and I'm trying to keep up Mm. and they're endlessly talking about, and I know that there's truth in what they were saying. It can be hard. I don't want to dismiss that, but they would talk about what a hard time they had at Yale. Yeah. It was such a disconnect going from one environment in the daytime to another environment at night and hearing one group pretend to be the other. And it was very disconcerting. And, and you can see that kind of signaling that you're talking about with like a term like Latinx, mm-hmm. where I saw this Pew Research study, I think from August, that said that 25% of Hispanics in America had actually heard of the term and 3% use it. <laughs> and yet every NPR article, every ABC article every Twitter trending topic uses the word. Right. And you would think that it was ubiquitous and yet it's completely not. Yeah. I mean, I think that gets to, to the idea of, of social signaling for sure. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really, yeah. I mean, what you're describing, I, I saw that similar phenomenon in undergrad as well. I would, so I lived off campus uh, and, you know, for maybe listeners who don't know, like New Haven, Connecticut is actually like a very poor town. There's a lot of poverty and and so, but Yale itself, like there's like what we call like the Yale bubble, the campus itself was pristine and beautiful, idyllic. They had a lot of security around it to make sure, you know, kids were safe there. But I'd walk like, you know, four, five, six blocks back to my apartment downtown. And I'd walk through a lot of poverty. New Haven is, I think, majority black citizens there. And so, you know, I'd go to class and hear students talk about, you know, how downtrodden and oppressed they were. And then I'd walk through five blocks of poverty back to my apartment and see like actual people who are truly suffering. And yeah, like it was just, it's just an interesting thing. Like that, that observation, I'm not sure like what exactly is going on there. I've heard uh, there's an interesting thinker, Coleman Hughes. He cited a figure in one of his interviews. He's a young uh, black graduate of Columbia University, very prolific, interesting writer. He's cited some figure, I don't know the exact what it was, but basically like among African-Americans, the higher up they are in education and social class, the more sort of prejudice they perceive around them. Maybe there's some truth to that. Um, presumably, you know, if you're sort of lower income, you're, you're maybe more around people like yourself. And so there's just less of that. Whereas the higher up you go, you probably are around more well-to-do affluent whites who may express some offensive attitudes and beliefs. 
But I mean, Coleman himself seemed to be somewhat skeptical of it. Um, I'm not sure exactly what's going on either with why this is the case. But it does seem among elites, one thing I'll say about this is that like, there does seem to be a kind of cultural or social cachet as a status associated with being a victim. And this is something I've written about too, is that like Yale was the first place anyone told me I was a victim, right? Like I went through a lot of stuff, fine, but like I never thought of myself as a victim. And in fact, I explicitly remember adults telling me like, do not embrace that mindset. Like that will be poisonous for you later. But then I get to Yale and like, you know, I tell people like what I went through or whatever. And they'd say like, man, like, you know, you were a victim of this system and like whatever. And uh, yeah, just like hearing, hearing those kinds of things. It's just so different. And so I had to learn, I had to learn like, okay, well, this is how people can gain some social validation here. Like one way I could have done it is to just like really lean into this foster care story and twist it into um, like an oppression narrative of like me against a sort of racist system or something like that. And, and yeah, maybe that, like that, that might've been very successful. And so I don't want to be too cynical here, but I do think that at least for some people, this may be, um, what's going on where like, I, I have no idea how this came to be, but like somehow being uh, viewed or coded as a victim in some way gives you some, some credibility, some sort of like social capital that you can, you can use to, uh, to wield authority over others. And some people have speculated that this might be why, I mean, like, I don't actually know how widespread this is, but I keep seeing it come up where these kind of like young white female academics and you know, so basically like there's a bunch of like kind of Rachel Dolezal kinds of people now being I don't know discovered or exposed or something in academia where sort of young white women will like claim that they are you know black or latinx or some kind of you know POC and you know, maybe in that community, there is a, a validation there that they can get through the oppression narrative. But I don't think that's the case in every circle. But certainly within academia, perhaps within media and other other sort of like culturally elite institutions. And I think like that, that too will possibly perhaps probably sort of trickle down. I hope it doesn't. But it might trickle down. And I, and I already wonder what effect this is having on like, if I had heard these kinds of things, like currently fashionable ideas, if I had heard that when I was like 13, I don't know how I would have taken it, but it's possible that would have altered my trajectory. Yeah, it all comes full circle, doesn't it? To what we were talking about earlier, whether it's fat acceptance or discussions of family structure and now discussions of oppression. Right. Right. It seems like the the folks in these elite circles, they all, and I'm painting with a broad brush here. Right. It, I'm not speaking about everyone who goes to Yale, and I, I have friends who are perfectly, you know, great people who don't espouse these beliefs. But among a certain circle, it's like they're all kind of winking at each other, and they know that what they're saying they don't really believe. And yet, when this stuff gets broadcast outside of their circle, the people who can be most influenced, right? You know, Rob Henderson as a 13 or 14 year old, whoever he is or she is right now today, hearing this stuff can have a hugely detrimental effect. And if I'm just going to speak plainly, it's obscene. Yeah. Like it is, it, it's obscene. And uh, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale too much, but it, it's abhorrent. And I, I, <laughs> I, I just, I, I really can't tolerate it. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I, I sort of, I mean, I, I didn't have enough space to get to it and I didn't fully formulate my thoughts on this, but 
you know, when I wrote that piece, uh, you know, everything I learned about it, Lead America, I learned from Fresh Prince and West Wing. I didn't choose that headline. You know, the editors always choose those headlines. But basically, like that piece about how TV sort of informed my beliefs and sort of uh, shaped my aspirations. You know, when I was a little kid, I was watching The Fresh Prince or The OC. Like I was watching like Will Smith in that show. Like he had come from a, a sort of hard life tough background with a single mom and whatnot. And, you know, he was trying to make a go of it and and become successful in that show. And that really like inspired me and that motivated me. But, you know, I wonder like, you know, what if I had seen a different kind of show? What if I was sort of inundated with a different kind of message of like, whatever, I watch another show today where you know, the, the message is like the system is against you and there's, there's just no, there's no escape from it or something like that. Um, yeah. I think something like that could, could have been very detrimental. And yeah, I, I agree with you that it's that it is it's abhorrent, and I think that it's um, it's kind of like short term thinking of like here are the views and beliefs that I can espouse that will give me status and prestige among my friends in the moment, but in the longer term, it's going to harm the very people that we are supposedly you know that we supposedly say that we care about. Yeah, absolutely. So I know it's getting late in England, and I want to be sensitive to your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I could ideally talk to you for many more hours because uh, you've written a lot of fantastic pieces um, that are all worthy of the same kind of exploration that we've done on a few of them today. But to wrap us up, I want to ask you the very question that I ask all of our guests at the end. We're limited, I think, as individuals in all sorts of ways. We're limited in our time our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. So even the most well-intentioned, caring person can't be thinking of everyone else, every other group of people all the time, right? It's impossible, right? You're busy with your studies at Cambridge and your writings. I'm busy with my work in this podcast. We only have so many hours in the day. So is there someone or a group of people in your direct life or in the world at large that you would like to take a moment and offer more empathy to? Oh, oh, interesting. So a specific person? It can be a specific individual. It can be maybe a group of people like sociologically, politically, you know, like, mm. because we can get tunnel vision, right? Like when I'm researching a guest or when I'm thinking about politics and I can get myopic and forget about the people on the other side. And so oftentimes I have to remind myself, okay, let me not forget them and let me take them into consideration. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, <laughs> oh, let me think here. I mean, like something that jumps to mind, and I don't know if this is exactly linked to what we've been talking about. I mean, like, so, so one group of people, sure, like people who maybe disagree with me. I get it. Like, there, I've had people who who sort of think that I focus too much on the family and should focus on other things, and I think that some of those criticisms are are totally valid. Another group who I I. Yeah, it's hard to know who to have empathy for because it hasn't happened yet. But I'm kind of worried what's going to happen in the aftermath of this upcoming election. What is it in two days or whatever this Tuesday? And so whichever side doesn't get the outcome that they want, I I will yeah just feel empathy for whichever side, and I hope that we can find a way to to sort of get past whatever sort of disagreements that we have. I think that political polarization is something that I've, you know, I've studied it. I've very concerned about, about what's been happening. We've touched on it a little bit in this discussion about sort of left and right and disagreements, but it seems to be getting worse and worse. And I hope like whatever happens in the election and whatever happens, you know, just sort of, we can find a way to, to calm down and drain some of the, the anger out of these political disputes. 
Wonderfully said, Rob. Thanks again for taking the time to come on this podcast and sharing your insights and your research. I really appreciate it. And I imagine our audience does as well. 